Shit Platypus Says, episode 38. New Kanye, new Yee, new Yeezy. <laughs> yeah, so he just released a new album. A list, he had a listening party, right? Or a series of listening parties. Um, yeah. With like performances. Kim Kardashian came out in Balenciaga Couture. Um, Marilyn Manson and Da Baby were there. Da Baby. Oh, and he, re- mm-hmm. he recreated his childhood home, right? With the, with the cross mm-hmm, in the front. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and he got set on fire. I'm pretty sure it was not Kanye. Mm-hmm. It was a stunt man, but it was pretty dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the listening party was in Chicago. He, um, he had it at Soldier's Field, so it was like massive. It had cars and shit. It's good. Have you heard the, the tracks? I've listened to it once. Um, it's getting more and more... Well, it kind of picks up and carries on with the... the how do you say? The choir kind of religious... Yeah churchy yeah feel. the black church mm, vibe gospel. the gospel exactly sunday service i guess it's where connie connie went he went gospel yeah if you trace him over like through his through his history his through his like musical history it kind mm-hmm. of it 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 went that way jesus walks i guess was one of the big ones but it didn't get super i mean even though the message was like kind of christian it didn't actually get like the sound didn't get so uh gospel mm. until later um, I, you know, I used to complain about it cause I wasn't, I wasn't so into it, you know, like I'm, I'm an atheist and I was kind of like Kanye, like what's going on. But now I've started to appreciate it from a different place. Um, Audrey actually, uh, was sending me some tracks that she was saying that Kanye was in- inspired by and mm-hmm. I thought it was dope. Pastor T.L. Barrett and the... And the youth Christian choir. What about those tracks? So, I, I don't know. Like, they're super uplifting, actually. It's about hope, right? It's about bringing in the light. And I don't know. The world is, like, somehow aligned with, with your potential. You, you can... Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I started listening to it on that level without mm-hmm. just feeling like it was a, an ideological message about, like, God... You know, also, I mean, he started this church, but they look kind of like a 70s cult. Like they're they're kind of weird. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not like the institution. It's something else. But it's like 70s cult with who's that was like James Terrell artwork. That's what it's like. But. Yeah. 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 It's, it's got a weird vibe. I don't know. Ah, his mom died. Cut him a break. <laughs> that's that's what this album is for. Donda. Yeah. Uh, we all mourn in different ways. So, you know, mm-hmm. um, what else has been going on? Well, I don't know. <laughs> the Americans have left Afghanistan or I guess. Well, the British have left Afghanistan, too. Yeah. The Germans also left. But I guess our German uh, members were like, yeah, but they didn't see any combat. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I guess nobody showed up to receive them in the airport when the German troops came back. It's weird having mm-hmm. Afghanistan and the Taliban be on the news again because it gives me that mid two thousands retro uh, vibe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I watched Zero Dark Thirty this weekend, so yeah, I guess I'm going trying to tap that vibe <laughs> i haven't seen it actually i haven't seen zero deck you haven't seen it uh, should i yeah it traces the run-up to obama's assassination um no it oh, doesn't Osama bin laden, Osama bin laden. You mean. <laughs> 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 freudian slip it's been a long day yeah freudian yeah. slip you know, obama Jesus was in Christ. power when osama was shot uh caught and uh killed yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't have a death wish for him no, either. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> you know. Here, I guess he, he gave the go-ahead for the assassination. He did. Bin Laden. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess it's funny how much they didn't know in the lead-up to this mess. I can't imagine the debacle in um, Afghanistan and Kabul with the withdrawal of the troops could have yeah. been any worse. But um, 
Well, it could have been worse, but could it have been much, you know? I don't know how that's going to play out, but it looks super mm-hmm. bad for the Democrats mm-hmm. uh, that the Taliban is going to be celebrating in Kabul mm-hmm. and the on the anniversary of September 11th. Mm. Well, they were, yeah, I mean, it was in the news that they were like celebrating um, last night and firing like celebratory shots into the air and this kind of thing. I mean, Biden is upholding um, a Trump... Trump's position, right? Who Trump initiated the withdrawal, yeah. and he had different terms and conditions. Um, and he Trump wanted like a hand at the table. Um, he had like a planned um, withdrawal mapped out that apparently they gave to the Democrats, and we were like, we've done all this work. This is the information you need, and I didn't, maybe the Democrats didn't didn't take heed of that. Biden's upholding Trump's um, plan for a withdrawal. Um, and then it also goes back to well, Biden related it back to his earlier stance on on withdrawal as well in his recent speech, right? He said that under Obama, right? He mm. he already was saying that this is not a nation building mission, mm-hmm. and so it sounded like he was sort of raising raising the problem as that the United States had become a key part of this nation building project and therefore the Afghan government had become dependent on the United States and that this had created a problem Mm -hmm. for now um, the departure of the American troops and I mean I would say yeah he inherited this Mm. plan from Trump but you know there was all there was all kinds of problems from the jump I think it was in April where in Biden said that they were going to move the date of withdrawal from May 1st to another date. And he said that the date, the date was going to be the anniversary of September 11th, which sounds like a fucking terrible idea. And then at one point he said, no, it's going to be by the end of August. And like, I remember the Taliban's response to Biden's changing of the deadline that was like, well, you know, we already had a deal. So I don't know, it just seemed like there was there was um, there was a kind of fudging of what had been laid out. But who knows? I have no idea if the Republicans would have done any better. I have no clue. All I know now is that it looks pretty Mm. bad, um, Mm -hmm. you know, for for the Dems. I I don't Mm -hmm. know if you've seen this. Uh, or if you can see it, mm-hmm. it's a helicopter. Hang on. I don't know if this is real, but it's being passed around yeah. on Instagram. And it's like, it says, Joe Biden deserves credit for supplying the Taliban with Black Hawk helicopters, which it took them four to five days to learn how to fly and are now hanging innocent civilians for the world to see. And the picture is of a Black Hawk helicopter with a hanging man um, outside of, like, you know, below it, just like a hanging person. Um I don't know if this is true. Y'all fact checkers out there can check it out. But that's part of the disaster, right? The fact that the Americans Mm -hmm. had to leave so quickly that they left behind all this arsenal Mm -hmm. of war machines that now are under the control of the Taliban. And data, apparently, a bit um, as to who their collaborators were. I don't know. It's nuts. Yes, including the names of people in Afghanistan that were helping the Americans, like translators and all sorts of people that now the Taliban have lists and they're apparently execution lists, right? And so while on the one hand they're talking about amnesty and, you know, doing Mm. all these... uh, public uh press um statements about how they're not going to kill their opponents they're executing people Mm -hmm. and hanging people out of helicopters on the other hand so um it's going to be a strange september 11th anniversary i mean we could touch on what the left makes of this those on the left are turning this into some kind of proof that as uh tariq ali wants to point out the u.s empire has limits right like that what the defeat of the Americans in Kabul shows us is that um, there's this decline. It's, a, as he calls it, a major political and ideological defeat for the American empire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Jacobin came out with an article that was titled, Joe Biden was right to pull out of, Af- of Afghanistan. In it, it says, uh, for all of its flaws, the Afghanistan withdrawal could be a transformational moment in U.S. political culture, helping to solidify in the public mind the stark limits of U.S. power um, and accelerate the country's slow turn away from endless foreign meddling and toward the many alarming crises it has festered at home. I 
wonder. I guess they Jacobin still feel like they're putting pressure on the Democrats to kind of like follow through with their socialist policies or whatever. You know? <laughs> like I don't know. I don't know. Like you know what I mean? Like as in like oh well now we're not spending money there. You can I don't know build back better. Like yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a calculation. It's like, well, I guess like you got to, you know, tighten the belt around the war budget so that we can fund these social programs or something. I guess there's like a whole rabbit hole we could go into with like imperialism and question mark that Tariq Ali is bringing up and how the left deals with questions of imperialism today. And I know that this is something that's discussed in, in the reading group and in, in much more um depth and um and what that might have meant for like a left historically and we're, we're in a very different situation today and um iraq and afghanistan is is very different different and kind of detached from those earlier historical um moments but you know what i mean he's coming from that like anti-imperial that's what he's bringing up and um that is has like anti-americanism intertwined with it as well oh yeah Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, this is what it feels like um, a, a sort of retro. Um, it makes me feel like I'm back in the founding of Platypus during the Iraq war. I see. Uh-huh. And we, you know, we had a interview um, that we'll link in the episode description with Tariq mm. Ali, led by Chris Catron. And we had a, a dinner afterwards. A lot of the things that they talked about was the Iraq war and the responses by the left and these questions of imperialism. And during the dinner, you know, we were fairly new, like students that were part of the initial cohort of Platypus. And we just wanted to talk to Tariq Ali. So I sat next to him and Ben Blumberg sat on the other side. And we were talking to him about, well, you know, if you say troops out now, like what's going to happen to Iraq in terms of the civil war that's brewing, which, by the way, now is brewing in Afghanistan, right? Because the Taliban and the IS are enemies and they're going at each other. And so we're seeing that as well. And he was very, um, he got very emotional, uh, like it, he got very charged, very upset. Mm-hmm. And um, Chris and Spencer, our older mentor members, like stepped in and sort of started to talk to him. And he, he really didn't like that we were raising this critique of this position. And he thought that um, we, were, we were just ending up apologizing for mm. the American um, military. And he stood up and um, pounded his hands on the table and then left with his cohort and left the dinner. And mm. so to see Tariq Ali making the argument about Afghanistan mm-hmm. in uh, the blog, in the New Left Review, was like, it took me back there um, mm-hmm. to the anti-American and anti-imperialism mm. of, of that earlier moment. I see, yeah. But, um, but now there are no organizations, right? So like back then there was the RCP and the, and the ISO, and then the UK there was the SWP and like all these organizations that were part of these campaigns, these anti-war campaigns. Yeah. And now it's like Jack had been trying to pressure the Democrat to spend less money on yeah. war and more on social programs. And the anti-war coalition is like, yeah, we should give Afghanistan reparations, like this kind of like white guilt position but yeah i guess on the flip yeah. side of that earlier tariq tariq ali moment was the kind of christopher hitchens um we should invade right it, yeah yeah i but mean yeah i think it's like where the left uh, was at but um yeah yeah i mean obviously um socialists should oppose the invasion however um that said what's happening now in terms of the influence within Afghanistan, like China is being invited to the table. And, you know, I, I just think that it's, it's a real question to me, like how talking about the limits of American power um, helps us understand the tasks for socialism. Mm-hmm, 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 um, mm-hmm. If it means that these really unstable parts of the world are gonna become part of the sphere of influence of such political forces as China and Russia. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know how we square that with the possibility of a socialist left. And that's depressing. It's distressing and, um, as well too. And it's yeah. distressing. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so we're gonna listen to Kanye and um get down with the gospel <laughs> get down with that hope sophia 
Gotta have hope. Yeah. Gotta see the light. Platypus lives. Kim and Kanye are gonna reunite. Yeah, I'm going back to Chicago. Reunite with that initial moment. Yeah. Kanye City okay. and the founding of Platypus. Mm-hmm. We return to the founding moment. Raison d'être. All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so we're only kind of like brushing on a much deeper issue. And if you if you'd like to contribute anything on the left and Afghanistan or Iraq or the invasion and how the left has reacted or is dealing with that, get in touch. Yeah. Yeah, and also we'll include, like we said, the link to the interview with Tariq Ali and um, some resources in the Platypus website from our archives in that early Iraq war moment. Well, enjoy the rest of the episode. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Okay, bye. Hello, welcome to another episode of Shit Platypus Says. This is Pamela Nogales. We have a two-part episode for you today. In the first part, our European correspondent, Andreas Wintersberger, interviews Eduardo Maura from the Spanish party Podemos. Eduardo Maura was interviewed back in 2014 for the Platypus Review. Now, almost seven years later, Andreas asks Eduardo to reflect on the trajectory from the indignados, from the anti-austerity movement in the streets into the institution of the party and to the recent electoral defeats in the Spanish elections. In the second part of the episode, Ephraim Karlbach, the current president of Platypus, sits down with Mike Watson, a UK-born art and media theorist whose recent book, The Meming of Mark Fisher, How the Frankfurt School Foresaw Capitalist Realism and What to Do About It, has been published this year by Zero Books. They discuss the correspondence on the new left between Adorno and Marcuse, the nature of the administered society, and whether or not socialism is just wishful thinking. If you like the podcast, share it, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find us online, Platypus Says on Twitter, Platypus Says on Instagram, and platypus1917.org for all of our archives and the new issue of the Platypus Review, September 2021. For this segment, I will talk with Eduardo Maura. Eduardo is a former member of the Spanish Parliament for the party Podemos and an assistant professor for philosophy at the University of Madrid. Hi, Eduardo. Thank you so much for uh, speaking to us. Good morning, Andreas. Thanks for having me. What made you turn to leftist politics? What is your history with the left? I've been into politics uh, for a long time, but particularly and very actively since 2011, when in the... um, in the midst of a huge economic crisis in in the world, but particularly for me in Southern Europe, uh, I'm talking Lehman Brothers, I'm talking uh, 2008, I'm talking the aftermath of, of Lehman Brothers and, and the subprime crisis. Um, in Spain, there was a huge wave of discontent and social unrest, kind of uh, catalyzed by uh, the, the Indignados movement, uh, which uh, started uh, taking shape in in 2011 in Madrid, in the streets of Madrid and other Spanish cities. And I became a member, I became very involved with that movement, and that led to the uh, launching of uh, Podemos in 2014. And I ended up being uh, a member of parliament, and I was in charge of the um, culture and the arts. You already mentioned 2011, the economic crash, and also the Indignados movement. Looking back, how would you characterize the transformation from Indignados movement to forming a political party? It's quite a complicated relationship, to be honest. Um, In the beginning, the Indignados movement was um, strongly anti-establishment. 
which meant that party politics and parliaments were regarded as uh, dangerous and basically inefficient. After a few bitter experiences, we realized that parliaments were relevant for transformation. And that's when the tide turned for the first time, from anti-establishment politics to getting to the establishment in order to work from, from the inside. Podemos was meant to bring two worlds together, the world of um, the Indignados movement, Occupy, Wall Street, and so on, and the uh, more traditional politics uh, that uh, happen in, in parliaments. We thought of ourselves as a Southern European movement, willing to make connections to other movements and other parties in Southern Europe. So this was a huge moment, a huge turning point for us. And the other turning point for us was, was a little bit later, 2016-2017, when we found out that uh, organization was uh, an organizing as a whole, was a huge problem uh, because we didn't have much time to build the, 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 the proper foundations for the party. You thought of, or Podemos thought, or understood itself as a Southern European movement. Now, I wanted to ask about another Southern European movement, uh, Syriza, mm -hmm. because a similar party turn happened around the same time uh, as the formation of Podemos uh, in Greece, namely uh, the formation of Syriza into a united or a unitary party in 2013. How does this parallel the formation of Podemos? With Syriza, we learned that uh, you can't possibly underestimate the importance of the Euro and the European Union for the collective imagination. In Greece, many people said, we don't want the memorandum, we don't want austerity, but we don't want to fight austerity to the point of leaving the European Union. And the Greek people, was, Greek people were very clear about this. And Syriza understood the point, and they tried to manage austerity within the European Union, which is exactly the same thing that anyone would have done walking in their shoes. That's what, what had to be done. But what had to be done was also impossible, was also impossible to achieve. And, and that's, that's kind of the lesson to learn. You already mentioned Podemos was formed into a coherent political organization in 2013. Mm -hmm. How has um, the history of Podemos over the, the last six, seven years since information advanced this end of building upon the crisis of 2011? Where does the party stand in uh, relationship to its long-term goals. Podemos was always had in mind this now or never attitude. And now or never is, or can be very productive and very useful because it, it really makes you feel like every day matters. But at the same time, traditional parties and uh, the establishment as a whole has been there forever. And they know that it's not usually now or never when it comes to power. This now or never attitude really we, we took a toll on us. It could have been managed uh, more slowly. It could have been managed maybe differently. And uh, maybe the results would have been the same, but maybe not. If I were to do politics uh, again uh, full time, I would very much advise my peers to abandon every possible now or never temptation. Where do you think this now or never attitude came from? Two sources. First one, social unrest. People were going through a lot. People were going through very bad times. People were being evicted. And the European Union and the Spanish government was uh, trying to put forward austerity measures that were dangerous and harmful. And the other source for this now or never attitude was that we thought that the, the crisis could be managed from above. We thought that the, uh, the Spanish government, the conservative government, and also the, the 
the ruling coalition, the French-German coalition ruling the European Union, uh, could could manage the situation uh, if we weren't uh, fast enough. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that so-called party turn, the decision to build um, the party Podemos out of the movement of the Indignados, was a result of a realization that the movement itself wasn't enough to actually mm -hmm. transform society. What do you think should be the aim of a political party for the left or a political party that aims at transforming society and not just managing it? Every country has to tackle uh, short-term goals and long-term goals at the same time. Long-term goals are very well known. Climate change, inequality, racism, those three things, and feminism. So climate change, feminism, to fight against racism, those are, those are long-term goals that are, are going to be there till we manage to, to find a permanent solution. But uh, short-term goals are also very relevant to these long-term goals. So you have to deal with both um, sides to it at the, at the same time. In my view, in order to change the world, in order to transform social and economic and cultural structures, you need to offer people uh, something that at the same time, while it changes life as we know it, it is also uh, deemed or it also looks sustainable. That you can live and we can live in a, in a world that has already solved climate change. And, and this, is, this is complicated because it sounds too broad, it sounds too far, it sounds too distant. And, and you have to make these long-term distant goals uh, look uh, necessary now and at the same time sustainable. Would you say that socialism as a long-term goal was ever on the agenda for Podemos? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, firstly, because the Indignados movement was trying to go beyond left and right. Of course, it was a left-wing movement in terms of organizing, in terms of the tradition of the people who were involved, in terms of where we came from. We came from the left mostly uh, and we don't uh, and we don't have any problem with the word left or with being uh, part of the of the left but at the same time uh, we we also thought that uh, the crisis the crisis in tw in 2018 and 2011 was uh, so deep that we needed to go beyond the traditional uh, left right axis We needed something else. We needed to put our effort and our imagination a little bit beyond that traditional line dividing left and, and right. Uh, of course, in order to, to tackle climate change, there are left-wing solutions and the only available solutions for this problem come from the left. I mean, you can be a right-wing person and have... Uh, a lot of climate awareness and be aware of the problem and be aware of the situation. But the only scientists and the only politicians actually putting forward proper measures to tackle climate change come, come mostly or come basically from the left. So we, we, are not, uh, we are not trying to undermine or undervalue the left, not at all. We just think that uh, telling people that the left is the solution maybe it's not a good solution. Maybe it's not the right thing to do. But would you say that the goal of socialism and the left are identical? Uh, no, of course, the left is broader than socialism. But socialism is a huge inspiration for many families in the left, many schools of thought, many people, many movements, many trade unions. I mean, of course. The left has a lot to do, has strong ties to trade unionism, to socialism, to, to, to many, many progressive sources. And socialism is an important word. But, I don't know, in Spain there's a socialist party. It's a century-old socialist party. So the word socialism doesn't mean to me the same as it does to a Polish person or a Moroccan person 
or a citizen of the U.S. It's completely different. That's why I don't want to get married with a word or a flag. My flag is, is, the, is that we need progressive solutions to problems that the establishment is unable to solve. The same people who created or who have been creating climate change for centuries cannot be the solution to that, to that very problem. We need different solutions. We need alternatives. And I'm, I'm very much in favor of finding alternatives, progressive alternatives, because the far right has a lot of alternatives too. And I want to, to confront them and I want to offer the to offer people better alternatives and better solutions. That's what I'm... I'm more into solving problems than into rallying around any word. Whether it's socialism, whether it's leftism, because I'm really more into, into this progressive tradition in a broad sense than into a very specific family within that broader field or, or tradition. Okay, so um, let's come back to Podemos again. How did society change in the last seven years and what role did Podemos play in that change? We were very successful at bringing together different uh, generations. An older generation of activists who thought that change was uh, not possible anymore and a younger generation of people who were better prepared who were probably more dynamic, more active, and this was very, it proved very useful uh, in order to build the, the, and to launch the, the party. But that, at some point, uh, wasn't enough either, because the traditional parties were still popular, less popular, but they also recovered, they were able to get back on track, and the Socialist Party, which is a, a very important, big mainstream party in Spain, And the Conservative Party uh, are now uh, in pretty good shape, to be honest. So they recovered. But Podemos also entered into a coalition with yeah. the Socialist Party. Yes, because it was the only way to, to build a, a progressive uh, government. And of course, the Socialist Party uh, was bigger than us in the ballot box. They got better results in 2016 and better results in 2018. 19, they had the right to elect their candidate as president, as they did, with our support, and we were happy to be the junior member of this coalition. It took a long time for them to realize that they needed us, and it took us a long time to realize that we needed them. But that's kind of a lesson to learn as well. Traditional parties and traditions in general in politics matter a lot. And people are not willing to put things they regard as, as valuable in danger, even though they think change is needed. You need the conformity of the people you represent, and you need uh, a lot of support that not only comes from your voters, it also comes from people who haven't voted for you, but they are willing to accept what you are offering. And this is complicated, this is problematic, This takes time, and we didn't have time. In the last two years, Podemos suffered a series of electoral defeats. In 2020, um, it lost all seats in the regional parliament of Galicia and half of its seats in uh, the Basque country. And then in May this year, it only got 7.21% of the votes at the regional election in Madrid. What do these electoral defeats mean for Podemos today and its intended aims? The series of uh, electoral defeats that you mentioned all happened uh, in the midst of the pandemic. The Spanish political uh, environment became very polarizing. On, on one hand, there was Isabel uh, Diaz Ayuso, the incumbent uh, president of the region of Madrid. She's a, a lockdown skeptic in, in the name of freedom and in the name of what she calls uh, to live life the Madrid way. This election was a snap election as well. This, this is also relevant. This wasn't uh, planned. It happened because she was interested in order to take advantage of the situation in the country. She wanted to look like a national leader. She wanted to sound like a national leader. 
the meaning for the Spanish left. I don't know. I think Pablo Iglesias made a nice, bold move when he decided to run as a candidate in, in Madrid. For our listeners, Pablo Iglesias stepped down yeah. from his position as second deputy prime minister to run for the regional re elections in Madrid. And he, he left this position in order to lead the Podemos' ticket in Madrid. I think he, that was a nice, bold move because it helped the left to take these elections seriously, because it helped to shake things up for the last time, because Isabel Díaz Ayuso, this lockdown skeptic, is, is a quite a dangerous populist uh, right-wing leader who is uh, hard to confront because uh, she doesn't seem to abide by any rules. She doesn't play by any book. And Iglesias was very much uh, a very worthy uh, opponent. He made things harder for, for Isabel Díaz Ayuso. But still, the, the right had a wonderful result. And Iglesias, I think he made the right choice, but it wasn't enough because the Socialist Party performed quite poorly. But let me just come back to that one question. What do these electoral defeats mean for Podemos? Of course, uh, now there was uh, a need, which was a new leader. And the first thing that happened after Iglesias resigned was that four women kind of became the leaders or the, or the most prominent voices for the party. So for the left and for Podemos in particular, uh, this is the beginning of a post-Iglesias uh, era. It's a new chapter for all of us. And uh, I think it's a, it's a nice moment to rebuild the party, to bring back together some of the people who have been, I don't know, kind of uh, unhappy with the development of uh, Podemos in the last three or four years. And uh, I think it's a moment for recomposition. Podemos is still the junior member of a successful government in Southern Europe. The vaccination program is working. The, the economy is getting better. I mean, the situation is not too bad for the left to build a successful ticket for 2023. But obviously, Iglesias is not here anymore, and he was very important. He has, he has been very important for a long time, and that matters. And his next move will be very much scrutinized by the people and by the media, and that matters as well. All right, Eduardo, thank you so much for um, talking again uh, with Platypus. Thanks for having me. It was wonderful. All right, thank you. Did you know that Platypus is now back live and in person in most campuses? We host reading groups and coffee breaks and panel discussions on campuses in North America, in Europe and Asia. If you'd like to know more or join one of the chapters, you can go to platypus1917.org. And if you're not sure if we're in your area, you can drop us a line at shitplatypussays at gmail.com. And if you happen to be in a place where we have not yet conquered, you can join us virtually on our coffee breaks and reading groups on Zoom. You can find us and drop us a note on Facebook at the Platypus Affiliated Society if you'd like to join us. And now the interview with Mike Watson by Platypus President Ephraim Karlbach. I developed a strong political consciousness in my teens. I mean, I come from a background where we didn't really have any money. And I think I suppose there was a certain level of, in a sense, resentment. I think the, the first election I voted in was the 97 election. And I was studying sociology and history and art, actually. And I just got very involved then and looked up the Communist Party of Britain who had a youth wing called the Young Communist League. And mm -hmm. we got 
the head of the Young Communist League to come down to Hastings on the south coast of England where we were, me and some right. friends, and we all joined up. I lived in Italy for 10 years until three years ago, and then of course I saw a slightly different angle because you actually have people in Italy who, who call themselves communists quite openly in a different way to the UK. And then I'm now in Finland, and actually I'm now a member of the Vazimisto party, which basically just means the left party, which is an alliance or was formed out of an alliance, which included the Communist Party. By now, you know, I don't know what to call myself. Um, I mean, I, I kind of the thing is I'm a little bit Adornian, but I kind of, I say it tentatively because as we're going to talk, we're going to see now as we talk, um, Adorno has this reputation as someone who avoided uh, action as such mm-hmm. and my book talks a bit about that my forthcoming book one of the jumping off points for your book is uh, mark fisher's last kind of one of his last written pieces this crazy to a unwritten book called acid communism in which he describes how the 60s nag the present right and one of the features of the 60s or what we might call the new left is the critique of uh, official Stalinism and official social democracy. And I think what you get into in your book is also you bring up older debates from the 30s and 40s through the Frankfurt School. And actually the way that the 60s nags the present in your book is precisely through this debate between Marcuse and Adorno, the much older figures, regarding the student movement in Germany. So first of all, I'd just like to ask, what, what do you think Fisher meant when he wrote that the 60s still nag the present? I mean, I think he saw a huge potential in, 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 in the 60s and something that almost shames us, that we just have nothing to live up to the counterculture of the 60s, actually 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. Maybe maybe we can exclude the 80s, but uh, from hippie culture up to up to rave culture. And I think what he pointed towards in the introduction to Acid Communism, the unfinished book, was the need to foster some kind of counterculture today as the only means of spreading uh, class consciousness. But it's very unclear where he would have taken that because parts of the introduction just really talk about fairly pedestrian working class aspirations like having a holiday. And then, you know, there's parts where you really think that the acid element of Acid Communism might be something related to psychedelia, then, then then you think, well, actually, he's pushing away from that. So it's not clear how much he intended at some kind of far-out psychedelic movement uh, or even far-out movement that embraced radical abstraction in, in, in culture, in the arts, or whether he's kind of pointing at we need to kind of reach the people, um, we need to go out, we need to have maybe parties, we need to have you know groups that gather together and discuss books and theory you know but in a way that's accessible they kind of seem like different things and and i think sometimes people think well can it really be the case that we're going to appeal to the masses through a you know far out psychedelic embracing movement i think that he really meant all of these things that we need to reach the people you know doing it through music doing it through partying is a good idea with regard to certain demographics, but we also need to be able to go out and talk to the people who stack shelves in supermarkets, nurses, your elderly neighbours. So I, I think really what I end up with in the book is saying that you know this is maybe the moment to do that because we're coming out of lockdown. You have a generation who went to university, uh, we didn't actually go. Um, you have a number of people who no longer have their jobs or don't want to go back to work. And when these people all converge, when we get out of lockdown properly, who knows what will happen, but it would be would be maybe a moment to try and relate to people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like then that the main drive for Fisher, the reason why the 60s nag the present is because we've regressed below even the consciousness of the new left. It seems like the Corbyn movement and the kind of last 10 years on the left haven't reversed that. The, the Corbyn movement around momentum seemed fairly fairly tepid, and I was in Momentum forums during the 2019 election. I wanted to be involved somehow, so I made some memes and I made some videos. There was kind of a memeing section of the, the Momentum kind of, you know, back-end website where people would meet up and decide how they were going to campaign. 
and they were kind of thinking well we need something a bit like the Sanders campaign we need something a bit like the alt-rights campaign that supported Trump when he got into power as it emerged it was nothing like that at least nothing no one's matched the alt-right campaign and I have to add that the alt-right campaign that apparently maybe helped tip Trump into power and of course he didn't actually get as many votes as Hillary Clinton nationwide um, but that kind of very aggressive uh, far-right embracing meme campaign it's not really clear that it did get Trump into power the numbers are so small it's so you know it's a matter of a few thousand votes nationwide that you might as well say anything pushed Trump into power anyway you know aside from that the the alt-right campaign was very kind of strong in the sense of like impressing upon people that the boundaries of our discussion have moved this far right whether or not trump you know is embracing white supremacy or nazism really the boundaries are pushed that far right therefore trump can go that much further right himself without really being challenged because people are focusing on this kind of bogeyman of the you know the the, the nazi meme producers so that was kind of very powerful in in changing the symbolic order and the left have managed to do the opposite and, and and actually, when you look at the momentum campaign for Labour, they were doing things like asking people, can you make a one minute video talking about why you don't like the Tories? So you get people talking about how they were waiting for a cataract operation. But, you know, this just doesn't compare to far right meme campaigns in the sense that it's a victim campaign. There's no strong narrative. There's no let's make the country great. And of course, you know, we don't want to probably say let's make the country great because we're not patriotic or nationalist in that sense on the left. But we need a narrative and that's not, you know, we're not finding one. And the most obvious narrative is let's be the country who brings all countries together and leads a revolution that leads, that, that, that results in everyone being, let's say, equal for want of a better word. It sounds like that's an issue of goals and aims, right? You just raised the, the question of world revolution. But previous just now you were talking more about kind of advertising tactics and how to appeal to people yeah yeah okay demographic. Um, so i guess in the i guess they weren't really there was a kind of tacit assumption that everyone had the same goals but there might have been disagreements about you know what kind of memes you should put out to attract people it seems to me that those are two very different questions i mean yeah okay i'm talking about a slightly different thing but i mean i mean that the, the narrative you know, as, as we look around for narratives and we can't really find one that works, you know, the, the, the one that underpins the left is, is, is overlooked. And we don't have to go all the way to let's make a world revolution, but just generally, you know, be, being a generation that, that, that brings about a, a fair and just society is, is, is enough of a narrative. That, that reminds me of something Mark Fisher writes in Capitalist Realism, which is that um, one of the issues with the left and a feature of capitalist realism is that it doesn't believe that revolution or socialism is actually possible, but just, you know, making some small increments to make this society a bit nicer or a bit fairer. The thing is that the Corbyn movement is not comparable to the hippie movement because the hippie movement wasn't, wasn't an electoral movement. You could have a movement that's kind of a little bit prodded from the electoral parties and their circles into existence that you know you could have a, a a strong leftist meme movement that grows up in parallel and somehow influences the election but that it doesn't really seem to take off and partly because i think the natural reaction to far right memes is far left memes guillotine memes memes around stalin then you get something very different because it's not actually what many people of the left want The thing is that the internet allows levels, levels of organisation that could bring about a far more advanced street-level campaigning. And by that I mean, well, one thing that's interesting about the Momentum campaign, which was a tactic I think borrowed from the, the Sanders campaign, is you had in these online forums in which Momentum campaigners gathered, 
people saying we need people out canvassing tomorrow in this town we also need memes making about this or you know we need you tomorrow to all go out and canvas somewhere and make a meme and ring a friend and speak to a neighbor so i think yeah we need the street art should we say in the street happenings that maybe break people out of their kind of routine you know kind of enslavement to to shopping but we also need people who are able to go and talk to their neighbours, talk to the elderly again. Two things. One is that that just sounds like you're saying we need to work out how to help Labour win an election by reconnecting with, quote, the ordinary voter. So it's a very long game because if you look at if you look at what happened to Corbyn, we're just not allowed to have anyone or any any Labour manifesto that even approaches socialism. And actually, Corbyn was very successful in moving things that way. So he actually said, "I'm a democratic socialist." in a TV debate against Boris Johnson or I favour democratic socialism, but it was said in such a way that, you know, it's like I favour a socialism. He favoured a socialism brought about through the ballot box. And no one's really said that in Labour. Labour's always been a kind of a social democratic party that has always kind of tempered the, the, the left's ambitions. One of the pieces you refer to in your book is the exchange of letters between Marcuse and Adorno on the German student movement. You know, there partly what's at stake is whether practice is blocked in the present. In after the failure of the revolution, in the context in which socialism has become kind of Stalinism and social democracy, the liquidation of the revolutionary party, um, there's a kind of breakdown of a dialectic of theory and practice. And there doesn't appear to be a kind of way out of that in, in the present. And that kind of uh, informs their different views on the student group. Um, how do you understand the theory practice problem in Adorno and Marcuse's letters? For Adorno, basically, uh, humans progress through a process of identifying, of giving things names, of giving things measures, and therefore of kind of neutralizing them he looks to abstraction and art as the kind of only thing that stands outside that false process of identification and even that doesn't he says of art of abstract art what it does is it copies the process of the commodity fetish so he basically says that the artwork tends to be completely outside the system of, of identification and of commodification it kind of says that i'm something special this is where he can't agree with Marcuse, basically. Uh, but he basically says the artwork is something that can, through pretending to be kind of separate, autonomous from the world, can lead us to a momentary kind of escape from, from, from forced consciousness. And Marcuse doesn't go along with all of that. And Marcuse basically thinks that we need to use art and this kind of capacity of abstraction to break through the forced consciousness of capitalism. We need to use that alongside the protest movement to to demand a better future. So I guess what we should maybe drill down to then is what was the new left? Why there was a student movement, why it had a critique of the old left. And that's something that, that Fisher tried to get into, I think, in that the communist piece. I mean, the new left to me is, is a left that has attached to it um, a number of issues that we will probably talk about under the rubric identity politics, but which really, you know, it, it is a case of taking the, the kind of abstract relation to to labour and applying it to people's everyday lives. So, you, you know, you don't feel that, you, know, you don't have to somehow fit yourself into some diagrammatic vision of society as a kind of triangle with the elite at the top and we're somewhere at the bottom. It starts with with us, you know, so you are the individual female worker or immigrant worker or, or, or what have you, and that's your entry entree into, into left politics. It's something more relatable, basically. I mean, that basically is, is, how, I see, is how I see the new left, that it, it basically it, it, it humanises left theory. Why was that necessary? I think basically that the that post-war people weren't relating to Marxist theory, you know, often refracted through the media. They weren't relating to the left in terms of being alienated workers. In the book, you try not to kind of necessarily take up 
one quote side against the other. Right. So you, for example, recognize that the student movement had in fact become the kind of caricature of itself that Adorno had warned about. Mm-hmm. And that the tension between that issue of prefigurative politics does kind of persist in in Fisher's in Fisher's portrayal of the kind of you know the the desire to have action uh, immediately, um, which, as Adorno points out in Resignation, kind of uh, is a form of regression uh, below the the level of theory rather than advancing it. And that's one of the kind of points of contention with Marcuse, who was arguing that the the practice of the student movement was advancing theory beyond itself. To go to that issue again in, in terms of in psychological terms of practice being blocked and kind of having a healthy ego that would be able to act in the world rather than this kind of forbidding superego or a kind of depressed compromise. One way of characterizing the new left uh, and the counterculture is that it responded to this problem by embracing irrationalism and a kind of embrace of psychosis as a political stance. Yeah. And it seems to me that that's something you identify with what you call the acid left. You write in the book, to get hung up on the policy details, whether anarchist, communist or socialist, would be overcumbersome. And indeed, endless pouring over the minutiae of left theory is directly counterproductive to the irrationalist aim of an acid left movement. And then a bit further on, you write, it is up to the left to adopt irrationality as a motor for the irrational act of compassion, one political calling that can justify our empty human existence. It is from the depths of anxiety and depression that such an unrealistic mission arises. I wonder what you think about this, what you call the irrationalist aim that the left should take up. If you look at Adorno, but also I think Fisher and the way he ends capitalist realism, it's like a last recourse. It's like the thing is, I think Adorno really comes from the point of view that look, if you set about saying, "Hey, I think I have an answer," there's a risk that you kind of think that because you're allowed to think that that whatever solutions that you're allowed to think that present themselves to you in a capitalist society, in a completely administered, as he would call it, capitalist society. Uh, are probably only there because they're not dangerous. So you have to be very wary of what you can think, and you have to therefore seize on 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 the thoughts that kind of come, you know, in in more unusual ways that present themselves, you know, in ways that they probably aren't fed to you by the capitalist system. And that's where I talk about irrationality and psychosis, but it's also about. Um, what capitalism does to us. So Fisher talks a lot in capitalist realism about um, capitalism causing depression, anxiety, uh, etc. And um, I basically in the book say that that was very much present in during the lockdown for many people um, or in our societally that we had um, this idea that there was going to be more mental illness, etc. because of the lockdown. But obviously it was going to affect poor people more because maybe they were forced to go to work because they couldn't not go to work. Um, so I wanted to revisit that and and basically seize on Fisher's uh, statements in the last paragraphs of Capitalist Realism where he, he does actually say that we need to take the, 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 the kind of depressive effects of capitalism and the anxiety creating the effects of capitalism, I'm paraphrasing him a lot now, and you need to turn it back against capitalism and comparing that to Adorno's characterization of himself as melancholic and, and his kind of feeling that the only way we, we can break through the false rationality of capitalism is through a dark, melancholic art, Samuel Beckett, Gustav Mahler, Schomburg, um, Kafka, Edgar Allan Poe, etc. And I think that, that in many ways is still the case. And I think we see it playing out in the kind of the main thing that's covered in the book we haven't really talked about in meme culture um in the darkness of meme culture a lot um that that is a process of not knowing what to do of having nothing really to work with but of of any way producing something something dark 
uh, as an expression of uh, kind of what capitalism does to us, but also is a kind of like refusal to comply. So capitalism kind of teaches us to be happy, and then people produce this dark stuff that that maybe just in its its perversity because it's like um, just such um, a null expression. The nullity that that, that that offers no reprieve from capitalism, that therefore throws you back on the terrible conditions of capitalism, that then maybe makes you want to act. You know, I th- I think that's kind of a fairly irrational response, but one that maybe can can get traction and maybe force a generation into some kind of action. I guess the idea there is that um, by kind of propounding a um, embrace of of depression in meme culture, you will kind of shock people into a recognition of the necessity for overthrowing capitalism. Yeah, let, let's. If I can just quickly go into going to Adorno's mechanism, what he sees happening in the abstract artwork. He talks about the shudder. Okay, it actually appears throughout his work in German, but gets somehow translated out of a lot of uh, English translations of his work. But it runs through dialectic enlightenment, minima moralia, some of his writings on music and aesthetic theory. And basically he says that when one looks at an artwork that's abstract or listens to an abstract piece of music, there's a certain point in which, because you don't know what you're looking at or listening to, you're no longer able to categorise and say, like, I am me and the rest of the world is kind of the other, basically. So if you can imagine listening to a piece of music and you kind of lose your boundaries momentarily, but it can only be momentary. In fact, if you lost them long term, you wouldn't be able to actually probably communicate or function very well in the real world. But momentarily, you kind of lose your edges and then you suddenly snap back into yourself. And when you snap back into yourself, you're aware of what you just lost, of that, of that, that there was a fleeting moment in which you weren't, identifying, you weren't employing identity thinking in which you were one with the wider world. So Adorno would see this exemplary of how we could be one with the wider world. If you get shocked by a really dark piece of artwork that's abstract that you can't relate to and you momentarily lose yourself, when you return to yourself, you're aware of that moment of truth, of a a momentarily truthful existence, coexistence with a natural object. And this leads to the idea that you know, that we can coexist with each other and with, with nature. But I do think that some forms of, for example, internet culture are so kind of counter to to rationality in the sense of, 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 of having any cogent thought that they in themselves could throw us upon, you know, a similar kind of experience. But I, I'm also talking about something a bit different because I think that um, I don't think we have to go along with Adorno and find, you know, something parallel in today's society, you know, for everything he says. I, I think you know, there's something slightly different happening in which people make hopeless memes, um, but in a way, in looking at those hopeless memes, because you're not presented with a possibility of escape, you might be thrown back repeatedly on the just dire conditions we live in, and at some point that's going to raise the issue of, you know, how are we going to get out of this? You know, I, th- I think that that could lead to action somehow. Um, it's a little bit different to Adorno's mechanism. Mm-hmm. I guess that thro- throws us onto my my kind of final question to wrap this up, which is to return to that issue of actually what the politics are here. So not just a recognition that things need to change. Obviously, capitalism, um, you know, produces all kinds of discontent, and people want to. Uh, live a different life all the time in all different ways, and they can choose all kinds of reactionary uh, politics to do that. And capitalism can be opposed to the right, and people's discontents with capitalism can be taken up in all kinds of right-wing ways. It doesn't quite answer the question about the left and and how we might overcome capitalism and what what the kind of politics that are. So I just wanted to return to uh, the quote from your book that I. I kind of passed over before, where you're talking about this idea of an acid left, um, and you say it's up to the left to ad- 
adopt irrationality as a motive for the irrational act of compassion, the one political calling that can justify our empty human existence. I wonder what what is the politics of compassion? Yeah, I, well, I think that is um, a kind of truce with the object, you know, as in we're kind of in conflict with the object and that being anything outside ourselves constantly. And compassion for other people or for the environment is a moment of accord with the outside world. And that is taken to be irrational today. Rationality is basically beating the world down with sticks in ways conducive to making money. So, you know, the, the kind of idea that one could just be nice to each other, uh, or just thinking about forgiveness, this kind of experience is, is not promoted. So basically, I see a comparison with this kind of accord with the world that can be found by experiencing abstract art and compassion, with the compassion which would arise from that. So that's basically what I, what I mean there. Okay, Mike, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me today and for answering my questions. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Thanks for asking such difficult questions. And uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing it. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society featuring original tracks by Thomas Villaggi. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. 